You're listening to Deus et Machina, a podcast that brings people together for short conversations about religion and technology. Our first season has to do with artificial intelligence. I am your host, Matthew Vaughn. My co-host for each episode will be Norm Jackness, a professor of technology management at Columbia University. In this episode, the second in our two-part series with David Hoffman from Columbia University, we continue our discussion of AI and medical ethics. In this episode, which very much builds on the previous one, we discuss some of the many ethical implications of letting machines into the healthcare business. We talk about things like prayer, data, privacy, and of course, capitalism, among many others. David, you've worn your clinician hat most in this in this conversation. I'm going to ask you to wear the ethical hat here in a minute more formally, but right now I want you to wear your lawyer hat. You're you're around hospitals, hospital administration. Many hospitals are religiously affiliated. Religion has impacted healthcare in profound ways, at least in this country, but uh, throughout the world, throughout throughout the Western history, etc. Are you seeing, uh, from a legal standpoint, anything teased out in this conversation that has not been reflected in your clinical description? Yeah, the willingness to let a machine substitute its judgment for a human is playing out in a religious context where institutions either do or do not want to make that leap from decision to support to decision substitution because they don't feel it is our place to hand off the responsibility we have for providing care to a machine, which to Norm's point has not been fully anyway validated. And we're seeing lots of situations where the notion that a machine can be better than a human's judgment is a deeply unsettling notion theologically, right? And when we discuss religion in my various bioethics classes, and I teach a number of different classes, one of which is law and bioethics, I remind my students that you cannot reason your way to understand faith. It is not unreasonable. It is not a reason-based process which just means our tools don't work for evaluating it. Compound that with the power of prayer. There's lots of good data that says that prayer is an effective intervention for people who have strong faith. Of course, measuring what is strong faith is its own exercise in subjective insanity, but more importantly, we're talking about a decision to defer what we would refer to as the scientific standard of care for the healing power of prayer, where we know that prayer is effective for some patients. And when we talk about who it's effective for, 
we haven't yet come up with a technology, nor get to work on this, a technology that can tease out what is an actual faith-based impact on the patient's health and what is the placebo effect. And I don't know, as a philosopher, whether we are ever going to be able to understand the difference between the hand of God, as it were, intervening because of prayer and the power of the human mind to produce real, tangible, measurable, physical effects and improvements by prayer simply because the prayer acts like the sugar pill. And we know that the human mind, the most underappreciated organ of our body, has enormous curative powers that we don't have a clue how to unlock other than prayer and the placebo effect. There, by the way, I'm not doing the work where people are actually working on this. They're not anywhere near getting to the answers, but maybe 50 years from now we will. Or maybe half that, because everything happens faster than we think it's going to. We'll see. Okay, so David, I'd like you to put the, the less the clinician hat, less the philosopher hat. This time, let's hone in on that ethicist hat for just a few minutes. Mm -hmm. You described an ethical dilemma as the sort of juxtaposition between two or more perhaps contradictory or opposing forces. Could you maybe, before we ask my further question, would you restate how you define an ethical dilemma? I, I really appreciated the way you said that. I'd like to hear it in more concrete terms. In simplest terms, everyone should visualize this, literally visualize it, as the unstoppable force meeting the immovable object, right? Where you have two or more ethical principles, each one of which is absolutely irrefutable in its importance in a given situation, but each of which produces a conflicting result. And again, the classic form of this dilemma is the conflict between patient autonomy and the obligation of clinicians to do what is right for the patient. Sometimes patients make choices about their care that the clinician may view as the wrong choice or a bad choice. And yet the clinician has an obligation to respect that choice as long as the patient has decisional capacity. For patients who lack decisional capacity, what we sometimes legalistically or pejoratively refer to as competence, for a patient who lacks competence, to defer to their non-capacitated judgment, that's a form of abandonment. That is the opposite of a clinician's duty of beneficence, duty to do what is good and right for the patient, and yet the judgment whether somebody has decisional capacity is itself an inherently human subjective judgment and probably the clinical judgment that it is hardest to get any group of clinicians to agree upon. And so the net effect of that is we have clinicians trying to decide whether to let the patient make a bad decision, what the clinician believes is a bad decision, or treat the patient over their objection, or deceive the patient in order to give them treatment that they really don't want, based on a clinical judgment 
about whether the patient has decision-making capacity being an inherently normative ethical concept, right? We say somebody has or does not have decision-making capacity measured by how they undertake the process of making decisions in order to decide whether the patient understands the benefits and burdens and consequences of one versus another choice. And this is the mantra of informed consent, right? In order to obtain informed consent, contrasted with simple consent, just yes or no, a patient has to understand and has to be able to intellectually analyze the risks, benefits, and alternatives of a procedure and the risks and benefits of each of the alternatives. And one of the alternatives has to be doing nothing. We lack the meaningful technology or standardized instrument testing protocol to really judge with any consistency who does and does not have decisional capacity. And in the same breath, I will say, I fear for the day that an AI algorithm professes to be able to do that. Can I jump in here and increase your fear for that day? So you've been talking a lot about physicians who, at least during their education, have been exposed to ethical concerns. But now there are new players in the healthcare field, Apple Watch, other kinds of devices that claim to keep you healthy, monitor your health, give you advice when you should be going to a physician or whatever. How does that change the ethical picture in healthcare when now you have consumer companies and typically profit-making consumer companies doing this? And there are a lot of them, not just the big companies, but I mean, I have every year, I have at least half a dozen students who have some kind of healthcare consumer device that they're planning to, to issue. Well, so first let me clarify a point you just made. I have not once referred to physicians other than as individuals. I've referenced clinicians because we have a much more varied group of clinicians at the bedside than we did. And the physician, if there is a physician involved, is no longer what we used to refer to as the captain of the ship. So that's one complexity. Right, right. Yeah. And I'm confusing those terms, obviously. Yeah, I apologize. Okay. And then we get into the really thorny question, which is how does a patient or a clinician vet the decisions and recommendations made by a device, whether it's my Apple Watch or a much more sophisticated, specialty purpose device, such as a CAT scan or an MRI or a PET scan. When you can't look behind the decision-making process and you can't, in effect, cross-examine or interrogate the algorithm. So if an algorithm says you're blood values and oxygen saturation and level of intellectual function have dropped 3.7%, you should go to the doctor. Where in that recommendation by that algorithm is the competing consideration of having to use the dollars that would be spent going to the doctor to pay the rent or buy food or support a charity, right? So there's lots more going on in a decision that can be viewed narrowly as strictly a medical decision. No decisions are strictly medical decisions. And we make a, an important philosophical and ethical distinction 
between the promotion of access to health care and the promotion of access to health. And when you start thinking about health as the goal, not just access to health care, then that algorithm has to become far more sophisticated and, might I say, far more humble in its judgments. And I have yet to hear anyone talk about building a humility subprogram into an artificial intelligence algorithm. <laughs> So we've, uh, returning briefly to the issue of dilemma in our last few minutes, you've, I think, very ably articulated now this dilemma between autonomy and beneficence. And I think that was very, very clear in its sort of the two poles. You've also, even just since we've I've recapped most recently, you've spoken about issues of privacy. Norm has broached issues of, frankly, capitalization of data and how that relates perhaps to privacy, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. David, you've already spoken to a few dilemmas. Maybe could you name concretely what you see a few of the other dilemmas are when we're thinking about ethics of AI and particularly ethics of AI framed from the perspective of a religious concern? Do you see any other dilemmas that, that immediately come to your mind? And I'm putting a bit on the spot here, but are there any others that come to mind as being on your mind, or at least perhaps on the, on, on the surface somewhere that we need to be reflecting on. Yeah. And I think the first one that comes to mind because of my clinical bent and because it's something that I've had to confront very recently is the notion of privacy and specifically electronic privacy. So recently I had to intervene on behalf of the privacy rights of a patient, one who I never met and whose medical records I never saw, but where this individual's medical records were sought for a court proceeding where somebody was being criminally prosecuted for raping the person whose medical records were at issue. And I perceived that, and this is a value judgment that I imposed upon the process as an advocate, I perceived that this individual's privacy in her mental health and other treatment information was more important than the right of the criminal defendant to go fishing around in her medical records, hoping to find something. That's a order of magnitude one challenge. When you start having hordes, reams, buckets of data about individuals that are living in cyberspace where the patient or the clinician or somebody advocating in a litigation context doesn't even know what's out there because it's invisible, that creates a dilemma of advocacy. And the lack of awareness of what you are able to know and what you ought to know about a patient, whether you're engaging as a clinician or an advocate, is central to being an ethical person and central to being an ethical clinician or advocate. So I teach my students that there are four qualities that they should aspire to internalize to be an effective ethicist. They are competence, 
confidence, humanity, and humility. And in order to even start to approach self-assessment according to those four parameters, you have to know what is knowable so that you can judge whether you have the competence, not decision-making competence, but the technical professional competence to make judgments and make representations and take positions. So competence is followed by confidence because it is incumbent upon any ethicist, regardless of what role she or he finds themselves in, to be confident in the positions that they assert morally. But to do that, you have to understand what is the purpose? What is the body of information that is at issue? And if all of this information is being derived, stored, and disseminated in nanoseconds, invisibly, it's really difficult and arguably impossible for any human being to know what they need to know. Back in the old days, when medical records were paper volumes, you could know that you knew everything there was to know, maybe not everything you want to know, but everything that there was to know that actually existed in a descriptive sense. By starting at page one of the medical record and going to the last page, and then you're done, and then you could make a competent judgment that you could have confidence in making rep representations and recommendations about treatment. When we move to an electronic medical record with parts of this record existing in a both epistemological and metaphysical virtual sense, it's impossible to even know what is the sum total of information available to me, let alone to know when you've seen it all. And in fact, and this is a direct analog to AI algorithms, the information is constantly changing. Right, The first image that comes out of a CAT scan machine is a bunch of slices. The computer instantaneously or nearly instantaneously converts those slices into a 3D model of the person's actual insides as if it were a photograph of their internal anatomy. It is impossible on a practical day-to-day -day basis for any clinician to scrutinize the accuracy of the conversion of those slices of a patient's body into that animation. And it's important as a function of our duty of humility to remind ourselves that's an animation. It is not real in the absolute sense. We're almost at time, but I have a few more questions I think I should pause though and give Norm the ability to make any final comments, questions, observations, et cetera. And then I'll conclude us with maybe one more question as we, as we end. Thank you again, David. No, I actually wanted to expand the discussion to mental health, which you touched on and raises even greater issues. And especially, I mean, during COVID, for example, the use of this avatar replica almost as a form of therapist, what the implications are of that, the use in Japan of little robots that are pet robots that are companions to seniors who, whose families have gone to the big city, but who's, the robots are also responsible for warning the doctor when there's something happening that requires medical attention. I mean, there's a whole bunch of this stuff that is in the realm more of mental health and physical health. And, and as you said, this is an area in which 
there's even less perfection than in physical health. And, and so I'm just wondering what the implications are, especially now that we hear so much more about mental health in every age group, from college students through late seniors. The challenge is the same challenge we face now in assessing something as simple as pain, right? It's important to be able to assess the level of a patient's pain so that what risks versus what benefits are justified to mediate the pain. But the most sophisticated tool we have at the moment for measuring pain is the smiley face scale. You ask a patient to look at five faces with different facial expressions from smiley face to grimace and to point to where they feel they are compared to the worst pain that they've ever experienced. Well, since we can't quantify the worst pain they've ever experienced, we have no way of comparing their description of their pain at the moment with someone else to know what dose of medication should be warranted. Take that most simplistic frustration in diagnosing where a patient is on a defined spectrum and apply that to mental illness. There have been thoughts that there is imaging technology in development that could diagnose whether somebody has mental illness and which kind of mental illness they have in what is represented to be objective terms. Well, when we talk about trying to objectify, not in the pejorative sense, but to create objective for comparison purposes, a person's mental state, when is sleepiness because your spouse snores or you have a newborn baby different than sleepiness because you're suffering from clinical depression? And when is that sleeplessness combined with either loss of appetite or increased appetite correlated as two data points in a diagnosis of depression? And when is it just there wasn't anything to eat in the house or there was too much of the wrong stuff to eat in the house? And so there are more limitations in our ability to use technology, which is objectively real in what it does, inputs and outputs, to turn that into just and proper way of interacting with a particular patient, whether it's for purposes of evaluating the indication for electroconvulsive therapy or antipsychotic drugs or insulin, as we were discussing earlier. David, if you had to pick a piece of pop culture a movie, a book, television show that you think adequately or perhaps interestingly presents any of these issues. Does it any come to mind? It's nothing new, but it's timeless. H.G. Wells, The <laughs> Island of Dr. Moreau. <laughs> because in the near term, the most compelling ethical dilemma that we face as we develop all of these new capabilities up to and including human cloning is what do we do about the mistakes? How do we characterize the, the personhood or the rights 
of someone who we have deemed to have some, what many people refer to as disabilities, I like to think of as diffabilities, different abilities, because the notion of disability presumes an insight into some norm, some average or typical or benchmark human being. Again, Descartes always measured against the perfection that we think of as God. And when we try to undertake to determine what should be the moral status of organisms, and I'm using that term purposefully to describe in the broadest and most general sense, living things. So anything from plants to animals, everything other than rocks. So when we're trying to decide what is the appropriate level of deference and respect we should show to particular human organisms based on their, we are treading on ground that we are inherently not qualified to undertake. And when we engage in interventions that can leave someone even more differently able than they were before the intervention, and then we have to decide where do we put those reformed or damaged or enhanced or different human organisms on the spectrum of entitlement to rights. That really, in crystal clear terms, visualizes or projects the ethical dilemmas that we face. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a product of the Mid-Atlantic and New England Maritimes regions of the American Academy of Religion. Matthew Vaughn is executive producer. Norm Jackness and Ronald Bernier are producers. All recording, editing, and post-production work was done by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. We would like to extend a special thank you to our guests for their time and their expertise. All opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the voices offering them and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of others affiliated with this podcast or the American Academy of Religion. If you would like to learn more about the American Academy of Religion, please visit aarweb.org.